please turn in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, we will be looking this morning at Mark chapter 14, uh, verses 26 through 42. Mark chapter 14, verse 26 uh, through 42. Please give attention now to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and life-giving word. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer? Our Lord and our God, we come this morning to a passage that we don't really know quite how to comprehend. As we look and we consider the sufferings of Gethsemane, as we consider the abandonment not only of Jesus's friends, but even, O Lord, the abandonment of you for a time so that Christ might go through the darkness that we deserve, that he might be face face to face with you, not as a son to his heavenly father, but as a subject to his judge, so that in him and through his blood, we might become the sons and daughters of God the Father in heaven. Father, we pray that we would be sobered by this text, that you would help us to see our Lord and our Savior afresh in all that he has done for us this morning, 
as we look here at Mark chapter 14, verse 26 through 42. Do this, we pray, for we ask it in the strong and precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We have just sung the hymn entitled, Man of Sorrows. What a name. And of course, that title, Man of Sorrows, is taken from Isaiah 53, which we read from earlier in our unison reading of Scripture. Isaiah 53, verse 3, he is called a man of sorrows. And it seems that title comes in many ways because of the way he is treated by his fellow man. Verse 3 tells us he was despised and rejected by men. Now, if you are like me in any way, you read those words and your mind immediately goes to the crowds that will be screaming, crucify him. Or perhaps your mind goes to the soldiers mocking and and beating him. Perhaps it goes to uh, the accusers who will slap him and, and spit in his face. I would venture to guess you don't instinctively think of yourself, of me, as the one that despised and gave the name in many ways to the man of sorrows. You you rather think of those, maybe what we might call really bad people in the gospel. But notice what Isaiah says at the end of verse 3. We esteemed him not. We esteemed him not. Isaiah identifying himself and all of Israel as those who would turn their backs on Christ and despise Christ the man of sorrows. And really, that's exactly what we see in this passage. It's, it's not the bad guys of the gospel we see that are going to abandon Jesus Christ. It is his very friends who are going to leave him in his greatest hour of need. His closest friends. His closest friend, Peter, is going to deny him three times. He is a man of sorrows because his friends will leave him in his greatest hour of need. But in Isaiah 53, just a few verses later in verse 10, we read these words. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Jesus Christ is not only a man of sorrows because he is left by his friends. He is a man of sorrows because he is left by his father in heaven who at the cross will turn his face away from his son and pour out the cup of his wrath upon the shoulders of Christ, who is bearing the sins of the world. And he will abandon his son there as he crushes him. He is a man of sorrows because he will be abandoned by his father in heaven. And so what I want us to do this morning is to look at Jesus Christ, the man of sorrows, who is both abandoned by his friends and abandoned by his father for us. So first, I want us to look at the abandonment of his friends. Verse 26 through 31, Jesus speaks of the disciples when they will abandon him, when they will leave him. He quotes in verse 27, Zechariah 13, verse 7, when he says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. 
But at this prediction, as Peter does, as Peter often does, with his misguided zeal, says, even though they all fall away, I will not. Again, Peter thinking more highly of himself than he actually is. We have seen this theme throughout Mark. Jesus responds to Peter with the prediction that he will deny him three times. Not once, not twice, but three times. We will see the fulfillment of this prophecy from Jesus later on in this chapter. And Peter responds to this and he says emphatically, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And apparently, did you catch what what Mark tells us? Apparently, all the other disciples said the same thing. Now, I want you to put yourself in Jesus' shoes here for a moment. He has his friends, his closest companions that he has been with for the last three years. People like Peter and others saying emphatically, I will die for you. You can almost hear the inspirational music in the background as the movie plays, can't you? It's almost a Spartacus-like moment, isn't it? You all know that movie Spartacus, the famous movie Spartacus being played, of course, by Kirk Douglas. And the authorities want Spartacus to stand up so that he might meet his end. And you have that great scene where all of his friends stand up and say, I'm Spartacus, so as to spare their friend from death. And it's inspirational that music plays and you as the audience are inspired by this dedication of Spartacus's friends. You could maybe imagine Jesus here would be inspired by all of his friends together saying, I will die for you. Maybe thinking, perhaps I won't be alone in this. Perhaps I will have friends as I trek to the cross. Perhaps I will have comrades in this battle. Maybe, just maybe, I won't be alone in this. But you see, for Jesus to think this way would be for him to deny the word of God as it is given to him in Zechariah 13 and as it is given to him in prophetic word concerning Jesus, uh, Peter and his denial and the rest of the disciples' denial of him. It's interesting here, Christ knows that God's word is more sure than man's word, no matter how inspiring it might be. Jesus here hangs on to God's word, even though it would probably feel so good not to. It would give him perhaps a momentary hope that he will have comrades in this greatest hour of need. But Jesus knows it would be a misguided hope because it would be a hope that would not be settled in and established by God's word. You know, there are times in our lives when we really want to believe something, aren't there? Because it will give us a momentary hope. It will, it will make us feel better. It will inspire us. And if we were honest with ourselves for a second, we would say, and, we, and if we were to search the scriptures, we would know that this thing that I want to hang on to probably contradicts scripture. But we just don't delve into it enough because we don't want to think that way. And so we put ourselves in the mindset that this momentary hope that comes from man's word, God is all on board with. And so we hang on to it because it gives us this momentary hope and inspires us 
to live a certain way. But if that hope contradicts God's word, it is a false hope. The inspirational music that plays in your head is not being played by God, but it is being played by his enemy. There is a slight temptation here from Satan toward Jesus. You ever had something that's going to come up that's really difficult that you need to do? And if you're not properly prepared for it, when it comes, you shy away from the battle. Satan may be here giving him the temptation. You're not going to be alone. It will be just fine. But he doesn't hang on to man's word. He hangs on to God's word. Brothers and sisters, nothing will set you up for greater failure in your walk with the Lord than to live on false hope that stems from man's word and not from God's word. No matter how good it sounds, no matter how inspiring it might be, Christ hangs on to God's word even when it hurts to do so. Think for a moment of what this says of Christ's atoning work on the cross. Jesus knows that his disciples, his friends, are going to abandon him. He knows his best friend, Peter, is going to deny him three times. Jesus looks down the corridors of time and he sees his companions. He sees his closest friends. And what does he see? He doesn't see their faith. He sees the complete opposite. He sees their denial of him. He sees their faith lessness in him. Yet he still marches toward Gethsemane. He still marches toward Calvary to die for unworthy sinners. Not unworthy sinners who get their act together, who somehow deserve the cross. Christ doesn't leave his disciples here going bound in chains and has a sort of a good feeling about these disciples. They sort of leave him with a good taste in his mouth. He goes off to the cross and he says, well, at least these men are really with me, really faithful. At least I can go to this cross knowing that they deserve my cross. No, he rather sees them sleeping and slumbering in his greatest hour of need. And that is the last image he gets of them as he goes away bound in chains. And he knows that they will even deny him in the future when he is about to hang on the cross for their sins. Beloved, Christ sees our future unworthiness, our future denials of him, our future sin, and he goes to the cross for them. He doesn't say, well, today he's worthy. And tomorrow he might not be. Today my cross is sufficient for him, but tomorrow maybe my cross will not be sufficient for him or her. No, he goes to the cross knowing our past, present, and future sins. He dies for unworthy sinners who are unworthy yesterday, today, and tomorrow. His cross is sufficient. It's sufficient for you throughout your life. You do not determine its sufficiency. His cross is sufficient. Did you catch what Jesus says in verse 8? But after 
I am raised up. I will go before you to Galilee. All that Peter and his disciples can contribute is denial of Christ. It is a major reason why Christ tells them to pray in verse 38, uh, because according to their own strength, according to their own flesh, all they can offer to Jesus is their backs as they turn away from him. But Christ and his finished work of redemption, when he is raised up, draws his people to himself. It is Christ and the power of God by his spirit that flows from his finished work on the cross and his resurrection, giving a vindication that God has accepted the sacrifice of Christ for his people. And the spirit that flows from his finished work is what draws his people to himself. According to us and our own power, all we can offer Christ is our back. All we can offer him is denial of him. But because of the power and sufficiency of his cross and work, he draws his people to himself. You are saved by grace through faith. And this not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. We sung earlier from the hymn, Marvelous Grace of Our Loving Lord. And we sing in that hymn, grace that is greater than all my sin. Jesus' person and work and the salvation he has won at the cross and his resurrection is greater than all your sin, past, present, and future. I once heard a pastor say, this is how you ought to pray. Lord, I've sinned against you. I'll probably sin in the same way against you tomorrow and in the future. Wretched man that I am. Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Beloved, your Lord sweats beads of blood at Gethsemane for people who abandon him. For his best friends who can't stay awake with him when he is in anguish for his closest companions that deny him in his greatest hour of need. Don't offend Christ today by saying you and your sins are too powerful for his cross. His grace is greater than all your sin. It is his cross. It is his finished work that draws his people to himself. Second and lastly, we see the abandonment of God. Verse 32 through 33, Jesus tells his disciples to pray. And he takes with them his closest friends, Peter, James, and John. Here again, we see Jesus' inner circle of Peter, James, and John. We, you recall back in chapter 9 where, where Jesus is going to the Mount of Transfiguration and he brings these three with them. And there they They see his glory, that glory that he will have when he finishes and completes his work and ascends to sit at the right hand of God the Father. But here he invites his three friends not to witness his glory, but to be with him in his suffering, to be with him in his pain. And we are told he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. 
Now, this is a fascinating phrase, this phrase, greatly distressed and troubled. This will be the same phrase that will be used later in Mark to explain the, the response the women have when they see the tomb that is empty. Listen to these words from Donald McLeod. Donald McLeod writes this, It is the feeling we experience in the presence of the unearthly, the uncanny, and the utterly eerie. It's the experience Israel had at the bottom of Mount Sinai when they witnessed God and were confronted with God when he came with a a trumpet blast, thunder and lightning and thick cloud, and Israel trembled at the sight of it. It's the experience Isaiah had in Isaiah 6 when he is confronted with the awesome holiness of God and he falls down as though dead. Yet, yet, the experience Jesus has is in a whole other dimension than the one either Israel or Isaiah experienced in the Old Testament. For what faces Christ is not just the presence of holiness, but the holy wrath of God poured out over him. There will be no Moses to intercede. There will be no burning coals for his lips. Unlike with Adam and Eve who are covered with garments, slaughtered animals' garments after they sin, there will be no garments to cover him in God's sight. He will be fully exposed and fully naked before the holy wrath of God upon you and my sin. Carrying upon his shoulders the sins of the world, he will experience the unquenchable flames of a God who is a consuming fire. He was greatly distressed and troubled. I wonder, beloved, do you today question if Christ understands your suffering? Friends, Christ knows your suffering not only as you experience them. He knows them in a way you will never have to experience. Don't offend Christ by saying he just doesn't understand. The writer to Hebrews understood Gethsemane when he said, We have a high priest who sympathizes with us in our sufferings. He says, My soul is very sorrowful even unto death. This burden of grief was life-threatening. The word for sorrowful here conveys the idea of, of bewilderment, anxiety, near panic, the feelings of somebody asking the question, How am I going to cope? I ask you today, brothers and sisters, do you ever have that feeling? Do you ever struggle with anxiety? Do you ever ask the question, how am I going to cope with this situation? Know for certain that your Lord in heaven has gone through the same feelings, times infinity for you. Verse 36 we get that haunting prayer of Jesus that we are told he prays three different times. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Not what I will, but what you will. Now we have seen as we have gone through the Gospel of Mark that 
throughout Christ's ministry, he has spoken of the cross. And as he has spoken of the cross previously, he almost speaks of it with a sense of calm, with a a sort of courage. Think back to chapter 8 when when Peter confesses Jesus to be the Christ, and then then Christ in in the first time in the gospel predicts the cross, predicts that he will be crucified, and, and Peter rebukes the cross of Christ. And with courage and zeal for the cross, Christ turns to Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. In chapter 10, he conveys such courage where we are told that he sets his face toward Jerusalem, the very city he is going to die in, and he goes toward it with such purpose, with such zeal. Mark tells us his disciples were frightened at the sight of it. And so he has been making his trek toward the cross ever since Peter's great confession back in chapter 8. And he has shown such courage, such resolve, such zeal in his trek toward it. And now he draws near to it. And what it portends is utterly terrifying to him. Notice he calls God Father. At the cross, as we will see in a couple weeks, he will not be able to call his God Father. He will utter the words, Eloi, Eloi, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But the cross here is not yet, and he is still able to call God his Father. It is his one last time where he might have God as his Father before he turns his face away from him, and he only sees him as his judge. And so he cries out to his Father in heaven, that one last time, asking, might this cup pass over me? He seems to shrink at the sight of the cross as it's coming so near. Donald McLeod gives the comparison here of Christ and the way he comes before the cross and the martyrs that you often read of. Isn't it true when you read of martyrs, so often they, they seem to display such courage such zeal. They they even find joy in their martyrdom. McLeod makes the point that what we have here is not any mere martyrdom. What Christ is facing is not just mere physical death. What he is facing is spiritual death. He will truly know the threat of Genesis 2. You will surely die. You will not just die bodily. You will die spiritually as he goes through hell itself and he shrinks at the sight of the cross. But even as his courage seems to be fading and shrinking, he says, not my will, but yours. And the answer that his father gives him, it seems, is there is no other way. If you are to save my people, my son, You must go to the cross. You must face the abandonment of me. You must face the hellfire of my wrath and the darkness of me leaving you, my son. There is no other way. This is my will. Brothers and sisters, it is God's will to spare his son for you. It is his will to do so.
God the Father is hearing the cries of his only begotten son, the son he has he has enjoyed eternal fellowship with in eternity past. He hears him saying in anguish, crying out, would you please let this cup pass over me? Yet God the Father loves you so much that he says, this is my will. This is the only way, my son. You must feel the darkness of my abandonment for my people. And dare we not think that this is some sort of cosmic child abuse. For there are countless passages that tell us that it is Jesus' will to do the Father's will. To submit to the will of his Father in heaven. That is what he takes pleasure in. This is not Jesus being forced and bound in chains by his fathers to do something he doesn't want to do. No, he willingly submits himself to the only means of salvation for you and for me as sinners. He willingly submits himself to the abandonment of his father so that we might become the children of God. Verse 41 through 42, Jesus, after coming a third time to his sleeping and slumbering friends, seems to come with a newfound strength. He seems to come with a newfound resolve. It seems that his father here, in that last cry to him, supplies his son with the necessary strength that he might be able to finish his work as his hour comes and dawns upon him. He's ready to take on the cross. And he says, it is enough. The hour has come. Back in Mark chapter 1, when we saw Jesus being baptized in the Jordan River by John with what is called there a baptism of repentance, which is really considered in many ways to be the inauguration of Jesus' earthly ministry. Uh, In Matthew chapter 3, you get John who is befuddled by the fact that Jesus would be taking upon himself a baptism of repentance. The sinless Messiah and Son of God taking upon himself the baptism of repentance. But in Matthew chapter 3, in that account of the baptism in the Jordan River, Jesus will say these words. It is necessary in order that all righteousness be fulfilled. There in taking upon himself at the very start of his earthly ministry, in the inauguration of his ministry, what does he do by taking upon himself a baptism of repentance? He identifies himself with sinners so that his whole ministry for the remainder of his three and a half year ministry is done on behalf of sinners, identifying himself with sinners. And here that identification comes to its horrifying end as he faces the judgment of God upon sin, upon the sinners he has identified himself with. Yet nevertheless, he stays committed to that overarching goal that he had at the start that all righteousness must be fulfilled. What is before him is the end. What is before him is the hour when all righteousness will be fulfilled as the spotless lamb of God charges into hell itself. 
for us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your Son. Father, we praise and glorify our Lord Christ. And, O oh, Father, we are fully aware that the sufferings he endured, that the deaf ears you had toward his plea to have the cup pass over him was all due to our sin. And so we pray, O oh, Father, that now as we enter into this table, as we join in this feast that commemorates our Lord's blood and broken body for us, might we think on our sin and might we throw them at the foot of the cross and might we know that we are forgiven past, present, and future sins and might we also be refreshed by your spirit so that we might kill that very sin that so offends you that brings the holy wrath of God upon our Lord and Savior. Refresh us now, we pray, that we might live as your saints, servants and stewards of the kingdom of our suffering servant, our man of sorrows, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.